Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. With a special edition today, we're interviewing the White House National Climate Advisor. As we all experience what scientists say is the hottest summer in recorded history and potentially going back 100,000 years, the White House remains focused on its ambitious targets related to cutting CO2 emissions and helping state and local officials and companies deal with this new reality. Today, I speak with Ali Zaidi, the White House National Climate Advisor. He coordinates the administration's policy to tackling the crisis. One of his key agenda items has been implementing the Inflation Reduction Act, which turns a year old this week. It contains hundreds of billions of dollars, including tax credits for electric cars and a number of incentives for taxpayers across the country. We'll get into that in this conversation. Also, it's been focused on moving the battery industry and clean technology here to the U.S., We talk about those wildfires in Hawaii, how this summer's heat records are impacting climate change policy, why people shouldn't get too pessimistic about those doom and gloom headlines, some optimism from the White House as far as the progress that's being made. And I also ask him about whether climate change has a branding problem. We also get to a few of your questions, including when we'll be seeing more electric car chargers on the streets to make an electric car more realistic for a number of you. Before we get started here, I want to thank everyone who has joined Mo News Premium. Uh, that gets you early access to interviews like this one, as well as extra content on our private Instagram account. It is a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism. And an added plus, of course, is access to the extra podcast and Instagram feed. You can get access to Mo News Premium for $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. We're also offering right now a 30-day free trial with the code Mo News Trial. You can check that all out over at mo.news. All right, with all that said, let's get started with today's conversation. So, so great to welcome White House National Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi to the podcast. In his role, he leads the White House Climate Policy Office, coordinating policy development and the administration's approach when it comes to tackling the climate crisis and a whole number of issues. Uh, Thanks for chatting today. So good to be with you. So as we speak, Hawaii right now responding to those uh, disastrous wildfires, and it's a comprehensive approach, right? The locals, the states, and and the federal officials are involved in that response. Deadliest fire in a century uh, in American history. The governor has noted that this was made worse by climate change. Want to get your perspective kind of in broad strokes. Well, first of all, this is a profound tragedy at an epic scale, and we've got to do everything we can to stand shoulder to shoulder uh, with the folks in that community uh, to help deal with the response right out of the gate uh, and then help rebuild over time. Um, We've got over 250 folks from FEMA on the ground, search and rescue teams, the Army Corps of Engineers, other agencies doing everything they can to be responsive. But what we're seeing here in Hawaii and what we're seeing all across the country and around the world is climate change fueling, turbocharging extreme weather events and making them more destructive uh, and have more impacts on communities around the world. So those hurricanes that we've seen for decades have become more frequent, more severe. Wildfires are burning with greater fierceness uh, and more destruction. Um, We're seeing that with the drought, 1,200-year records being broken. So it's, um, you know, uh, folks often hearken to the science. They point to the science to demonstrate that climate is a crisis. I think we can see that reality in our communities um, uh, well before we flip through the pages of a report. 
Yeah, I mean, we talk here, um, and it's interesting, and I'd love to get your perspective and and help explain to people the role of the government versus the private sector versus uh, individual citizens when it comes to combating climate change. You know, we see complaints in Hawaii that the power companies didn't do enough to cut power, given that they had warnings about the wind here. Uh, it comes at a time where we're seeing gas prices going up slightly, partially due to the fact that oil refineries are not able to work at full capacity above 95 degrees. And so interested to know how you uh, at the White House work with companies to inform them about what they need to be doing. How does that coordination work? Yeah, you know, we've got to tackle climate on a couple different fronts. Um, The first is to get after the root causes that are driving the climate crisis. And the root cause is pretty simple. When you burn fossil fuels, that combustion, when it goes up into the sky, that's CO2, and that gets trapped in our atmosphere. And over time, we've seen the atmospheric concentration of CO2 go up, and that's driving global temperature rises, basically as simple as that. And so what we've got to do is shift to cleaner sources of energy, and that's cleaner sources of energy in the power sector, but also in transportation, in industry, in buildings, in agriculture, all across the board. So that's thing number one, is we've got to get after the root causes. And we do that by creating incentives for the private sector and also by setting standards for the private sector. So they know the marks they need to hit over time so that we're moving as quickly as we can. At the same time, we've also got to build resilience to the climate impacts we're already seeing in our communities. That means setting building codes, making sure folks are updating their maps, making sure we are getting better data and analytics into the hands of decision makers, city planners, uh, emergency responders. And we're hardening the infrastructure that we have so that the road is maybe three or four feet higher, doesn't wash away during the next storm. Maybe the power lines are buried so they don't get knocked down and start a fire. Um, Maybe we're thinning out the forest so that they have less fuel to turbocharge the next fire. These are the work of resilience. And this administration's made a historic investment in this space through the bipartisan infrastructure law that the president signed a couple years ago, $50 billion being invested into resilience. So it's the work of mitigation, as we call it in climate world, which is reducing those CO2 emissions that are driving global warming, and the work of resilience, which is hardening ourselves, preparing ourselves and our communities, strengthening in the face of the impacts that are already coming. And how has that response been so far from companies in terms of that nudge or that extra information? To what extent have you seen um, cooperation with the federal government? How good is it and where could it be better? You know, I think uh, in every industry it's different and different companies have taken different approaches. Um, What we're seeing increasingly, though, is that consumers are demanding it. Regulators are increasingly focused on it. uh, And there's more scrutiny for folks who are cutting corners. uh, And that's the absolute right response. There is no reason in 2023 uh, that you should operate a company with your head stuck in the sand, ignoring the reality of what's going on around you. There is no reason if you run a company today to not access the best information that you can get from tools like the ones that we provide 
here in the federal government. Go to climate.gov. Go access. Figure out um, what risk exposure you have. What are the best ways to mitigate it? And maybe get together with your community and apply for funding um, to help you buy down the cost of boosting resilience, like FEMA. Um, you know, we talk about FEMA a lot when it comes to response. FEMA actually funds resilience improvements on the front end through the infrastructure law that I referenced earlier. The president increased funding for the BRIC program. That's building resilience uh, in our communities by getting grants out to folks well before the storm comes so that folks are hardening infrastructure, strengthening the assets uh, and reducing the toll on the back end. You know, every dollar you spend on resilience, you save $11 on the back end. So it's economically the right thing to do as well. Yeah, I want to get more into the Inflation Reduction Act in a second here. But one thing that I do hear from a lot of people in the community is they see all these doom and gloom headlines, right? Uh, this is the the hottest July in uh, recorded history, potentially in human history, going back 100,000 years. Uh, you know, the feeling that, you know, seeing the headlines out of Alaska with the uh, glaciers melting there, the headlines of Antarctica. And at the same time, they look at the numbers and they say, listen, some of the biggest CO2 polluters are the U.S. military, uh, major corporations. Uh, I'm just sitting here as an individual, you know, uh, limited in terms of what I can do. What do you tell people about what they're seeing and, and why they should have hope? Uh, you know, do you sit there from your office optimistic, uh, given that we're talking here in the hottest summer in recorded history? Pessimistic? Wh- where do you stand and what is your message to everyone? You know, I'm optimistic with a big side helping of recognizing we've got a lot to do still. Um, but here's why I'm optimistic. And it's because I think we know exactly what it takes to get the job done. Let's rewind the clock, right? Paris Agreement 2015, going into those negotiations. The world was on a trajectory to increase global average temperatures by five to six degrees centigrade. That's a lot, right? So that's Paris. Then you come to the beginning of this administration. Because of Paris, lots of countries stepping up. At the beginning of this administration, the world was around a call it, you know, two and a half, three degree trajectory. Right now, post the climate conferences that the presidents participated in, Glasgow and then in Egypt, we're around a 1.7, 1.8 degree trajectory if everybody does everything they've committed to. Now, that's still shy of the one and a half degrees. It still requires implementation against the commitments folks have made. But if you think about the trajectory we've traveled, or the path that we've traveled since Paris, that's a really big deal. Now you think about the same thing here in the United States. When we came into office, the United States was on a trajectory to reduce its emissions by about 20 to 25% by the end of this decade. Under the president's leadership, we're on track to double the pace of decarbonization, to be on a path to about 50% emissions reductions by 2030. So that just shows we know how to take action. We know how to come together. We know we uh, what tools and technologies are needed. It's just a question of willpower, of organizing ourselves, of staying focused, and getting the job done. So uh, this week marks the first birthday of the Inflation Reduction Act. First of all, notable, by the way, the president said last week, I wish I hadn't called it that. 
uh, he thinks it should have been called something more comprehensive. But that aside, would love your report card, Ali, in terms of Inflation Reduction Act. You gave it a grade as an A, B, C. Is it too early to grade? Where where are we in terms of where that is one year in? Well, let me give you some numbers just to think about uh, what's happened since the Inflation Reduction Act passed. Um, so in the last year, in one year, we've seen over 100 clean energy factories be announced. We have seen a battery industry that largely existed outside the United States and in China when the president took office shift to the United States of America. Battery belts being created across the Southeast in particular, 15 gigafactories, enough battery capacity will be online by 2030, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, to propel 10 to 13 million electric vehicles per year. That's how many batteries we'll be manufacturing. Solar, we used to not make a bunch of panels here in the United States. Solar capacity has gone up by a factor of eight. Eight million homes worth of solar panels will be manufactured here in the United States by the end of 2024. Credit Suisse says that we will be supplying 90% of our solar needs by the end of the decade. So, you know, as I look around, I think about what's happening with wind, with solar, uh, an offshore industry that's taken off and now created uh, a supply chain in 46 different states. Electric vehicles, we have double the number of EV models relative to when we took office, and that number will double again by the end of next year. So you think about consumer choice, how mega the shift is there. And folks now able to tap into a $7,500 tax credit for new EVs, 4000 for existing. So look, I think the transformative effect has already started to take uh, shape in a very, very big way. And you think about it from an economics perspective, uh, the U.S. has really become the number one, the single number one national destination for private investment in the clean energy. So I think the president sort of called his shot and it's going exactly as as uh, maybe even better than you would have expected a year ago. So some of the features of the Inflation Reduction Act included uh, taxpayer credits. Um, and, you know, when you talk to folks in your orbit, your friends and family or in, in formal gatherings, um, what are some of the things that people should know about when it comes to uh, features of the IRA that either are short-term, they should take advantage of immediately, or long-term? Wh- what are some of those things that people should know about that the, the law did, the law passed, and people can take advantage of? Well, the first is this uh, transformation on the electric vehicle side, right? 7500 bucks if you're buying a new vehicle, uh, and that will be point of sale, um, so it'll be very easy to use. And then 4000 for used. So even if you're not in the new car market, you can get a tax credit. And by the way, there are other states that have decided because of this federal leadership to add on top of that. So if you're in Colorado, for example, Governor Polis has a program that adds credits on top of it. There are utilities around the country that actually provide rebates in addition to that as well. So EVs are increasingly affordable uh, and it's no surprise that we've seen EV deployment triple under this president. And that's, uh, I think, a really big deal. The second is I point folks to the 
consumer credits that are available both for energy efficiency upgrades and for rooftop solar. So you can get 30% off your rooftop solar system because of the tax credits available through the Inflation Reduction Act. And same is what you can knock off the price of things like energy efficient windows. So you walk into that Home Depot, you know, those uh, windows that maybe cost 500 bucks now are 30% cheaper and they'll pay back uh, because they're going to be way more efficient than the ones you were planning to install if you went a different way. So that's, I think, another really, really big deal. The other part of, I think, the IRA that, that folks, I think, are starting to appreciate is this is driving down costs on their utility bill. So it's not action that they're taking, but their utility company is able to take advantage of this and pass along the savings. And we've heard that, for example, from utilities in Florida and elsewhere around the country. For uh, folks in rural areas, rural cooperatives are taking advantage of the tax credits, helping drive down electricity costs for folks. So I think people are benefiting in a really major way. I was going to ask specifically, where are you seeing people uh, paying less for power? Because I've heard complaints from people that they're paying more for power, maybe uh, unrelated to the IRA, but just generally speaking, are there specific areas of the country where you are seeing specific amounts in terms of how much people are saving? Yeah. So one of the things we're seeing in our power markets is during the pandemic, um, there was a freeze that a lot of the utilities put on rates. Um, there's sort of a regular rate increase that helps them pay for things like poles and wires and so on. And utilities put a freeze on that because of, you know, obviously the economic pressures uh, because of the pandemic. And there's been a catch up on that. Uh, and so that's something that people have been feeling. What the Inflation Reduction Act does is helps utilities that are tapping into solar and wind um, take advantage of lower cost, clean energy, and actually counteract some of those pressures. But Florida Power and Light is an example of a company that um, had announced, uh, I think, earlier this year or last year, uh, that they were able to take advantage of this and, and, and pass on the benefits to consumers. You know, we've also seen folks who have been able to switch to rooftop systems or to rooftop plus storage systems uh, essentially cut their bills down to zero. Our Secretary of Energy has been on this amazing tour around the country, meeting with folks who really have knocked their uh, utility bills almost down to literally zero and uh, recommend uh, folks following some of her travels. And of course, you know, in addition to all of these things, what the IRA uh, has done is really spurred a massive expansion in the jobs associated with building out the solar and wind and storage. Um, so we're seeing massive job creation, um, whether it's, you know, the building trades unions who are helping uh, construct these massive offshore wind facilities off the East Coast, or it's the electrical workers who are helping us install new grid components all across the country, helping get solar interconnected onto the onto the grid. Um, it's just been, a, I think, a massive, uh, massive upside for blue collar workers in particular across the country. 
Yeah, actually, and I, I was going to say that was one of the knocks. There was a McKinsey report out recently that the U.S. needs nearly 600,000 more construction workers on top of normal hiring and then another 300,000 engineers on top of what we have, especially to meet these ambitious targets that you guys have laid out. Um, how is the White House ensuring that we somehow find, I guess, between engineers and construction workers, nearly a million uh, more people beyond what we have uh, to ensure we can build out all the things that, um, you know, that you're looking to fund? Yeah, look, we are heavily invested in our partnership with building trades and unions in particular who, through their programs of pre-apprenticeship programs and apprenticeship programs, are sourcing very strong new uh, set of workers in this uh, space. I think they're seeing massive amounts of demand. I was in um, Atlanta, Georgia, in an IBW hall uh, meeting with a number of the building trades there who are helping pull in workers from all sorts of backgrounds into uh, the clean energy arena. And then, you know, I was in Maine with with Governor Mills and we went to a a community college where they're training up uh, folks to install heat pumps um, all across the state of Maine. By the way, they had set a goal for 100,000 heat pumps deployed by 2025. Thanks to the IRA, they hit that goal two years early. And they've set now a new goal for another 175,000 by 2027. Uh, But their approach of recruiting and training folks, and in this case, many immigrants to the United States, um, folks who are just learning English, uh, picking up new skills, uh, getting into this clean energy workforce, thanks to the community college system. So whether it's through pre-apprenticeships and apprenticeships and, and, and partnerships with unions, whether it's through the community college system, um, we've got to get, you know, we've got to get all our talent to the field if we're going to meet the moment. Uh, and that's absolutely what this administration is focused on. One other aspect of IRA, the electric car charging network, um, as someone, by the way, I uh, admittedly still drive a gas uh, powered car. I did try to rent an electric car in Florida uh, recently, and I have to admit, I found it pretty frustrating uh, in terms of a, a lackluster charging network, spent several hours of a vacation in a Walmart parking lot. And I've had a couple of friends who said, you know, they wanted to get the electric, but it's not quite there in terms of the charging network. Where are things right now? Where will they get? Can you lay out for us a, a situation? How, how soon in America will we be in a place where you can safely drive an electric car to most parts of the country without concern for running out of juice or a charging station? I think that uh, we're very rapidly moving in that direction on a national scale, and we're certainly all the way there in certain parts of the country. And here's what gives me confidence. So first of all, since the president took office, we've doubled the number of chargers that line our uh, roads and highways. That's pretty significant. We've also secured the largest single investment into electric vehicle charging through the infrastructure law. And that has motivated all 50 states, every single one of them, to develop plans on charging to tap into that federal funding. So um, over the next few years, all of those states are going to be building out networks uh, based on that federal support. In addition to that, we've now got dozens of electric utilities who are seeing the opportunity to sell electricity to folks who drive cars. And those electric utilities are also investing in the chargers. Um, Just a couple of weeks ago, 
General Motors and seven other uh, companies announced they're investing in 30,000 superchargers of their own. That builds on Ford's network, Tesla's network, Tesla's network, which, by the way, we were able to help open up uh, and make more interoperable with uh, uh, the rest of the marketplace. And on top of that, we've obviously got investment from retailers, you noted Walmart, but many others who are investing in this space. Our analysis shows that we are on a trajectory to support whether it's 50%, 60%, you know, or more as a share of sales um, by 2030. We're on track to support that uh, from a charging perspective here in the United States. So we're, uh, I think, growing charging at a massive clip recognizing, by the way, that most people are still driving, you know, short distances and they're going to be charging at home. But notwithstanding that, we get folks have range anxiety. We're going to be able to deal with that. Uh, And I think in a lot of parts of the country, we already uh, have achieved that goal. One of the major questions I get from people in regards to battery operated cars, electric cars, is, well, aren't we just basically kind of laundering the issue as opposed to using gas powered cars? You know, they're building the batteries that creates some waste. We're still putting a strain on the electrical grid, which is putting CO2 out there. Um, Is there a calculation or, or how do you explain to people, you know, converting to electric cars, how much cleaner of a reality we're creating in America, in the world? What is the translation between the the gas um, powered cars and the electric cars and, and the strain it puts and the pollution it creates? Yeah, it's massively cleaner because you think about it this way right now, you know, to the first point you said, you plug it into the grid. Well, isn't the grid dirty? Yeah. First, the grid today is about 40% clean electricity, right? So for starters, the grid is not all fossil. It's 40%. And it's rapidly, rapidly, rapidly transitioning to clean, right? Our goal is for the grid to go 100% clean by 2035. So given that the average car runs about 10 to 15 years, if you're buying a car today, you're buying a car that will be plugged in, if all things go well, to a grid that's going to be almost entirely clean. So that's thing number one, is if you're buying today, you are buying into a system that is rapidly decarbonizing as the thing that charges them. That's number one. Number two is electricity is just a far more efficient way to move the energy, right? So the fossils that are being used on the grid versus the fossils that are being used in your car, it is a more efficient process to run it through an electric vehicle. So there is an efficiency gain as well. So thing number one is the clean electrons. The thing number two is that it's a more efficient process. The third is folks' concerns about the energy intensity of putting the battery together. And I think that's not that's not an illegitimate concern. And I think that's why we work on improving the battery chemistries. We uh, are spending a lot of time on that, making sure they last longer, um, that they require fewer critical minerals. That's been an ongoing process. And, uh, you know, and I think we're going to make a ton of progress in that space in the coming decade as as we get more and more experience with these technologies. Final question here. I know you have to go. I was struck recently by Arnold Schwarzenegger's comments that climate change has a branding problem. 
And this comes up a lot. You know, it's called global warming at one point, but it's obviously it's not warming in all scenarios. It's extreme weather. So climate change sort of became the term for it. He says you should just call it pollution. Climate change has become too divisive as a term. Um, certainly there are people who are skeptics of it. I'm sure you encounter them and deal with them. Curious your viewpoint on the climate change branding, how you deal with skeptics, um, especially as you face a, you know, a, a majority in the House uh, of Republicans who have talked about overturning IRA, uh, questions about climate change, et cetera. Kind of broad strokes if you've, as you've worked in this world. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know what you need to call it uh, to get people to do the right thing. Um, you know, we call it a massive economic opportunity. Uh, we get a massive solar factory started in Dalton, Georgia, and yet you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene voting against the Inflation Reduction Act and trying to repeal it. Um, she's, by the way, the representative who represents that district. Um, you got folks who face down uh, Western wildfires like Lauren Boebert in Colorado and still manage to deny the existence of these threats that are imperiling our community's well-being um, and don't want to do anything about it. Um, I think the bottom line is this is a clear and present danger. Um, it's an emergency situation. It's threatening our communities. It's threatening them right now. Uh, and if we take action, we take action in a bold way, uh, we unleash massive economic opportunity. So you can call it pollution. Uh, you can call it uh, possibility. Uh, you can call it, you know, doom uh, uh, and despair. You can call it opportunity. I don't really care what folks call it, uh, as long as they get their act together and join with us uh, as we all work to run faster and faster to tackle uh, this challenge together and get to the other side. Ali, I want to thank you uh, for this conversation, for uh, your candid answers, and I look forward to continuing this conversation um, as uh, you continue to roll out new initiatives. And um, unfortunately, we continue to deal with the realities of climate change uh, as we have been this summer and, um, and moving forward. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. I want to thank Ali again for joining us. Always helpful to be able to ask my questions and your questions uh, to the powers that be. More details on parts of what he talked about today available over at climate.gov as well as whitehouse.gov. Before we go, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium. If you haven't already, it'll give you early access to interviews on the podcast as well as extra content on our members-only Instagram account and opportunity to ask questions on a regular basis. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism. The added plus is that extra content. You can get access to it for $7 a month or $70 a year. There's two free months there on the annual package. We're also offering right now a special deal for a 30-day free trial with the code Mo News Trial, one word, Mo News Trial, over at mo.news slash premium. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon. 